Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Tim Recker, the chief investment officer of the $2.4 billion Irvine Foundation. Tim joined Irvine in 2016 after spending a decade in private equity and real assets for the University of California Regents, four years overseeing alternatives at the Michigan Retirement System, and his early years at GE Asset Management. Our conversation covers Tim's career path, the culture and structure at GE and Michigan Retirement, and co-investments at UC Regents. We then turn to the intricacies of managing a highly concentrated portfolio of managers at Irvine, including effective governance, flexibility, team structure, due diligence, and decision-making. We close with Tim's perspectives on hedge funds, real estate, and fixed income, and the trade-offs in preparing for a downturn. Please enjoy my conversation with Tim Recker. Tim, great to be here with you. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't we just start with your background? Just take it from wherever you want. We'll go from there. Sure. Well, after graduating undergrad, I joined General Electric back when GE was, at the time, the most valuable company in the world and a great place to work. And I joined the financial management program. It's a two-year training program in finance. And so from there, I did a year in GE appliances. I was fortunate to get an international assignment and went to Hong Kong for three years. And it was in 96. I thought it was to go pursue growth and to find out I landed right in the smack of the middle financial crisis, which ended up being a phenomenal experience. What did that mean to you in the role you were in? 
Well, there's two pieces to it. The first was just to deal with when I showed up, there were 250 people in the organization, the business unit for GE that I was working for, about 25 or 30 of them were expats. And when I left, there were three expats and probably about 70 people. And I led the restructuring across the region to reduce that. And so at a young age to have to go into Japan, for instance, and to basically close an office in a an environment of lifetime employment was fascinating. Also worked in China, India, Philippines, Thailand, et cetera. And so I just provided a broad perspective. The second is I didn't realize it until now or until or later in my career, but to have an experience of working in emerging markets at a relatively young age and basically for 20 plus years to be tracking China and India and other markets closely to better appreciate their cultures and the differences and the nuances has really been a formative experience for me in my career. It's a lot of countries to be hopping around at a young age. What do you remember sort of key experiences that you took out of it? I think just the dynamism of China. It was just, even back then, it was just so obvious. The entrepreneurial spirit of the country, the speed of change. I mean, I literally was in Beijing when there were very few cars and it was literally bicycles. There were probably only a handful of skyscrapers. And so to see that change and the pace of change relative to other cities and other countries was fascinating. I think they're all interesting countries and for different reasons, but China has always stood out as a bit of a differentiator versus its peers. How did you get back to the States? <laughs> so interestingly enough, I met my wife in Hong Kong. We worked for GE together and we wanted to go to business school. And so we both applied to business school and we were accepted to go to business school at Duke. And so I took a job with GE Capital in investments just to basically get close to Duke. It was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that's how we came back to the States. But within a matter of maybe two or three months, I just fell in love with investing. And in GE, at that time, if you were a high performer, the pace of growth, if you they put you on, was so high. My view was like, why leave? And so I, I switched to the executive program at University of North Carolina and continued to work for GE and investments and was just very fortunate. What part of the investment world was that? So it was a $5 billion insurance portfolio, property and casualty portfolio. And it was just the CIO and myself running $5 billion. And for context, we only had 15 managers. I think I can't remember the exact number, but less than 15 managers for $5 billion. So today, when we talk about concentration, that was a formative experience for me to understand and appreciate risk. And then luckily, within about a year of me being in that role, my CIO got a big promotion. And rather than backfilling her role, she lobbied that I get promoted up not to be CIO, but to be a portfolio manager. She would technically retain the title and basically mentor me. But basically, I had sort of 80% of the day-to-day -day responsibility, and she was the strategic mentor, et cetera. And so basically, I was grossly underqualified, but I was running $5 billion at a relatively young age with tremendous support from her, and she's been an, an amazing mentor for me. What types of managers were those to have only 15 in the portfolio? So as a property and casualty portfolio, you have to have a fair amount of fixed income. It was all mostly public with a little bit of privates, but fixed income was a large portion. But then we had about 25% of the portfolio was in public equities because we had surplus. And within the equity portfolio, that's where the bulk of the managers were. And we had managers like Leg Mason with Bill Miller at the time, who had a, a 13 years straight of beating the S&P 500. And at the time, he had 35 stocks. In today's context, maybe not as concentrated as some of our managers here at Irvine, but at that time was certainly considered concentrated. So that I was also formative. Most of the managers were not, I would say, run-of-the-mill managers. It was really about differentiating and performance. What did it feel like when you're this sort of battlefield promotion to some extent, you're now managing $5 billion in your 20s? Yeah, it's just pure luck. That's GE. I always joke they keep giving you opportunity until you're about ready to drown. As long as you can breathe a little bit, they'll keep piling on. And so, you know, I fortunately was able to deliver and perform and just had great opportunities as a result. And it was just a wonderful experience. But I also, I couldn't have done it without the support of Gail Snyder, who is my mentor at GE. She was really fantastic. How long did you stay in that seat? I was there probably, let me think, I was at GE Capital for four or five years. And she was really great at changing the role. I was still responsible for that portfolio. But then GE 
capital was merging different investment units together. And so I worked across other GE asset management components. At one point, GE brought all their investment units together into one place in Connecticut. And I was able to then work with a lot of my peers in other areas as well, but still being responsible for that portfolio. It sounds like a whole career trajectory. So what was it that led you to move on? One interesting thing is at GE, I was at a young age and being an expat, being exposed to a lot of very senior executives and just seeing the demand that it had on your personal life was challenging. And I just, to see the experiences and how much, I guess, carnage there was, you kind of made a decision like, wow, do I really want to do that? And so to actually that black and white component to it really helped me to make a decision that at some point I, needed, I wanted to step out of GE and to do something else, to have more balance. But also I'm a very driven person. And without that, I probably would have just kept going and, and been sort of boiled like a frog, if you will. But what happened is, is that this is late 90s. Keep in mind, this seems obvious today, but probably was not obvious then. GE did a study about future CIOs, and they concluded that alternatives was the proper background for future CIOs. And so... For me, I'd been in a job at GE that was considered a long time to stay in one role at that point. And so I was thinking about different roles. And so I actually left GE to go run alternatives for the Michigan Retirement System, which at the time was the fifth largest alternatives provider globally, which today it's there's so much more dollars in alternatives. But at the time was truly a really dominant player in that space. And so it was a great opportunity to then just learn from an organization that had a great program versus learning from a great company. Yeah. How big was that? pool of capital? The overall pension system, I think, was around $40 billion. I don't remember exactly, but alternatives was about $13 billion, mostly private equity. So it was about a, almost a 20% allocation. So almost like an endowment style allocation back then. And keep in mind, this is 20 years ago. So again, seems obvious today, but they were very smart and ahead of the curve and historically has had excellent performance. But they were first fund investors with Excel Ventures, with Blackstone, with Berkshire Partners, just a long list of firms that were excellent firms. They were there in fund one. What did the culture feel like in that dip? So I can't imagine the intensity you're describing with GE was the same in, in Michigan retirement. It was definitely a culture shock. I think I was fortunate to work with a lot of great colleagues. I think let's first recognize it's a public pension plan. So there's a whole sort of cultural system around that. Within that universe, the Michigan retirement system, I would say, is actually pretty thoughtful and actually more differentiated than most. It actually doesn't behave as much like a typical public pension plan. It's actually fairly progressive, but you do have civil service rules. And so just dealing from the investment side, it actually wasn't actually an issue, whereas an issue was the administrative side and the HR rules, the travel rules. It was bizarre. And how long did you stay before the bazaar got to you? So I was very fortunate to get Jacqueline Johnson was a CIO, and she knew that I wasn't going to be a lifelong employee of the Michigan Retirement System. We had an agreement of exactly how long I would stay. And so it was really above board. She basically made it clear to me that if I, what she thought was a fair deal, what the minimum was, and if it stayed was longer than the fair deal, that she would be really excited. That was when you first showed up. Even before I took the job, we agreed on that. What was that term of imprisonment, whatever you call it? <laughs> I think the way she put it, if I remember correctly, was, what is fair is four years. If it's less than three years, I think she used some pretty harsh language about like she would basically go out of her way to make my life miserable. And if it was more than four years, then she felt like it would be a wonderful benefit to the retirement system. And it was literally almost exactly four years. And to me, you live by your word. You do exactly that. And it was a great experience for me where I had an opportunity to really learn a lot by running an amazing program. And I would like to think I benefited the program in terms of things I was able to do. And then the next step from there? So there, my wife was really interested in moving to the West Coast. I was fortunate to join the University of California Regents and I spent about 10 years there. Initially started running their private equity portfolio. And that expanded into created a real assets program, which was not real estate. We had a real estate team, but more natural resources. And so I started a real assets program for the regions and then also did some strategic investing. What did you learn working in the regions that you hadn't been exposed to before? I think that the CIO was Marie Berggren and her just raw ability to understand the entire portfolio 
the intellectual aptitude that she had to know every manager across a large portfolio. This was not a small portfolio. It's a hundred and some billion dollars. She knew every detail and she knew the underlying holdings of a lot of our managers. And so just that gave me a greater appreciation for how to understand the portfolio. And she really taught me not to look at managers in terms of just their own track records, et cetera, but to really look at the underlying companies and that really form your own opinion and be sort of intellectually independent of the managers and don't view them as superior to us. Like I think sometimes as investors, we hold the managers up a bit on the pedestal. She very much went toe-to-toe with them on discussions and on deals and taught us to basically challenge our managers on deals from day one if they did a transaction to look at it, evaluate it, engage in a conversation, and then form our own opinion whether we think it's actually a good transaction. And that was highly informative and I think really beneficial to my learning process and actually investment philosophy today. When you know that the managers know a lot more about, you know, if it's private equity and deals, public equity, the stocks, then you really will. How do you create a knowledge base so that you feel comfortable going toe to toe with them? I certainly didn't have that when I started my career. And I think only through time and through demonstrated skill can you build that confidence, at least for me. We ran a co-investment program at Regents for 10 years. And what we found through that experience and through just the engagement that we had with managers, generally speaking, we actually were bright more than the managers were in terms of our analysis. And I don't think it's a function that we were smarter or better than they were. I think it's they don't know their own bias And we actually know them better than themselves sometimes, (laughs) just because we see so many different firms. At least the team, it wasn't just me, it was a whole team of mine that was looking at things. And we really had an outstanding track record on co-investments that I would think was a function of our ability to pick from a highly curated subset, to be sure. But that with just even the ones we weren't co-investing with, when we would go toe-to-toe with them and debate whether we thought it was a good investment or not, certainly more than 50% of the time, we were right. And when you're wrong, you also have to have humility. And even in that conversation, you're never about who's right or wrong. It's in a dialogue and a conversation and just forming an opinion and then tracking that. You build your own hypothesis around the companies. How do you build up the process to effectively underwrite those (laughs) co-investments? Basically, it's no different than our managers. You really have to build your own hypothesis and you have to push your diligence and you have to constantly try to prove it wrong. And I think a lot of uh, people try to basically prove themselves right. And I think we do the opposite. You know, we build a hypothesis and try and prove it wrong. It's only after we basically do a lot of diligence and keep working at it and keep like, well, I can't find anything else wrong with it. Maybe it actually might be a good investment. And what's that diligence like? So it varied. For co-investments, obviously, you're utilizing all of the various third-party research, whether it's the consulting firms, the quality of earnings, et cetera. We measured how much time we use from the management team. One of the things is I think we try not to use more than one or two hours of the private equity firm's time because we want them doing deals, not spending their time with other investors, particularly on co-investments, et cetera. So we would try to be highly efficient. So we had our own DDQ. Some of my team took the lead on running that process. She developed a, like a DDQ, which we didn't use in our manager search. We very much believed in customizing it to the situation. Whereas in co-investments, there was such a strong set of recurring set of issues. We had a DDQs that we had for different sectors, et cetera. And we kind of followed that. But then you have to just sit down and even before you start the process and say, what's different here? Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of noise on individual deals and you have to boil it down to what are the four or five things that matter and what are the four or five things that can really go wrong. And yes, there's lots of other things, but those are the things that you really have to understand. And how do you consider your time allocation of what you're describing is effectively a deep dive deal by deal? And I know a lot of other people in the seat will take more of a framework that has to do with their sense of, is it a good deal for that manager rather than trying to re-underwrite the company? Now, we very much believed in our ability to add value through selection. And keep in mind, I also have a strong view on privates around sector specialists. And so most of our managers are all sector specialists. And if they ran more than one vertical, some of them might have had, say, two verticals instead of one. More times than not, they were better at one vertical than the other. And so we actually pre-assigned with all our managers where we would invest and where we wouldn't. And we would tell them, actually, that this is where we want to invest with you. And I think that really helped because we basically were trying to do deals where it was clearly in their power alley of expertise. But even within that, then applying our framework 
and selection. And we did about one in 10 deals that were shown to us. And I think that really allowed us to develop a portfolio of interesting deals. And we were looking for something very specific, which was something that has more asymmetric in the return profile. We were really looking for the possibility for outsized returns. Not that we would always do it, but we wanted to always see a few ways to see ourselves there. And if we could do that, if we could build a portfolio of those options, if enough of them hit, it would sort of work out. And I think the end result is actually a lot more of those options hit than we probably underwrote to. And so there's some luck in terms of the number, but there wasn't luck in terms of the strategy and designing a portfolio that had that asymmetric structure and opportunity. How do you think about time allocation of that activity uh, compared to kind of the core of everything else you're doing in, say, private So we equity. started that program, oh my gosh, that's been 13, 14 years ago now. So at the time, there were not a lot of people doing co-investments today. That's very different. We actually started with it as more of an ancillary strategy and quickly evolved into a co-invest first model. So we actually told our managers, if you cannot generate co-investment, there's not a role in the portfolio for you unless you can ge- for buyout funds, unless you can generate a two and a half net fund return to us. And so that's a pretty high bar. We generally think of buyouts as doing a two net. And so they had to consistently do two and a half net to have a role without generating co-investment. And so we really realigned the portfolio to create that deal flow. And so we actually spent a fair amount of time. I'd say it's at least 30 to 40% of the time was allocated to co-investments, which was aligned with how much capital was allocated to co-investments. All right, let's circle over to your seat today. You had these different experiences. I, I suspect we'll dive back in on private equity, but what formed kind of the core of your beliefs when now you're taking a CIO role? So first was just a Good governance, I think, working for different organizations and seeing how governance works. GE had excellent governance at the time that I was there. How do you define governance in that context? In today's context, I'd put it as my investment committee and just who am I accountable for? What questions do they ask of me? Do they take a long-term perspective? How do they think about the portfolio and the risks they want to take, et cetera? And generally speaking, I would say the Endowments Foundations historically have had stronger governance than other institutional asset classes. But I would argue Irvine, even within that universe, has very strong governance. And it was very obvious even just from the interview process and how it was run. It was just a very tight ship. The questions they were asking were very interesting to me because it was clear to me that this was a well-run organization. (laughs) What are examples of some of those good questions? They were actually asking me a lot of non-investment questions as well as investment questions just around my understanding of organizational behavior, my understanding of change management, my understanding of a lot of different things, you know, people management, philosophies, et cetera. And just the horizon, they asked about co-investments, obviously given my track record at Regents, and just how crisp the process was. I mean, the beginning of the process, it was clear, like, this is how the process is going to go. Here's the dates. Lock it all on your calendar. And it was exactly that. And there was no deviation. So it was just very well run. That's Irvine. Yeah. How'd that compare to the other places where you were? It's interesting. You know, so... GE, obviously, the governance was simply the CFO and our CEO of the business unit you were working for, and they are ultimately accountable for the profit and loss of that business. And so it was just very streamlined, straightforward. I think everyone was highly aligned on what the objectives were, and so it was pretty crisp. At Michigan, it's a sole fiduciary state, which is very interesting. There's only four in the United States for the state plans. And so that means the state treasurer is basically the fiduciary and makes all the decisions. I would say, generally speaking, that has proven to be not a tremendously great model. But in Michigan, the time I was there, I think Michigan has historically bucked that trend and has done well. And the treasurer at the time was a deputy treasurer back in the 80s when they had done some, I'll call it, other investing that didn't go so well. And he just saw that you really needed to have a pure investment focus. And he was really supportive of doing that and allowed the system to generate great returns. But I saw how other organizations ran and and some of the challenges that they had. And then at Regents, it's a public university. It's a very large government body. It's, It's a lot of different campuses. It's a very complex governance structure. And so that just taught me how difficult it can be to have good governance in that type of organization. Where at Irvine, what I really am thankful for is that we're $2.4 billion. 
it's a relatively small organization. We have 55 employees in total. We have a board of 12 to 15 people, depending on the year. And so it's just very streamlined. And then the investment committee is highly sophisticated. And their ability to sort of manage the investment portfolio in a thoughtful way is great. And I think a lot of times my committee, when we talk about different things, they will say, if there's things that we're doing that maybe are non-conformist to the rest of the industry, a lot of times the response is, well, isn't that why we should do it? Because everybody else is not willing to do it. Because does that not create the opportunity? And no, it doesn't mean there is an opportunity, but if there is an opportunity and others aren't willing to pursue it because of other government constraints, et cetera, then I think that is a good example. And so for us, venture is a large allocation in our portfolio. What is large? 26% of the entity. Pretty <laughs> you know, we've historically had top decile returns in our portfolio over many decades, and that's one component. It's not the only component. And I think a lot of our, my peers will look at our waiting and sort of be very concerned. And I was reasonably concerned when I came in and saw that. But I think as you get comfortable with it and you understand – it works if you have the right governance structure. It does not work if you don't have the right governance structure. And so we spent a lot of time articulating with the investment committee about how we evaluate that, how we're aligned, how my career is aligned to that. You can basically have a situation where ventures out of favor and misaligns with my career. And we all know that you can only have so many years under performance, and otherwise you won't be in the seat. And so just by having an honest dialogue around that mismatch, and I think being able to sort of delineate that we're going to measure the selection versus the tilt the tilt is the institutional decision. The selection is the team's decision. And obviously, the more we can delineate that, the better. And I believe that our committee will be supportive if ventures out of favor for some period of time, that we will continue to stick with that if we have the right managers. Now, I believe over a 20, 30-year period, ventures continue to be a great asset class. I believe in innovation. I just believe you can have five to 10-year windows where it doesn't perform. Sure. Let's dive in a little on venture. So you came into an existing portfolio, and we're sitting in San Francisco. You're near the hub in Silicon Valley. How much of that portfolio is a longstanding asset defined by best-of-breed managers that you couldn't put fresh capital into today, but you can continue your relationships with them? Yeah, so we have, uh, let's call it a barbell strategy on venture, where we have a reasonable number of managers that most people would love to have access to and you couldn't access today. But we also have consistently gone out to find the next great managers. And so that's why I call it a barbell. So if someone is on fund six or seven and they're sort of a good manager but not a great manager, they don't really have a role in our portfolio. But we'll either go with someone that's a long-established, high-performing firm or someone that's relatively emerging and has the potential to be a high-performing manager. One of the things that's interesting across all my experiences is I've been forced to look at each organization and figure out what the competitive advantages are for each organization. And I don't apply my own philosophy the same in every organization. I think some people that I see in their careers, they come in and sort of they do the same thing everywhere. And that has certainly not been the case for me. It's been for each organization, what's our competitive advantage? And one of the things for Irvine is at $2.4 billion, there's so many more things that we can do because of our size and our good governance and the flexibility that we are provided. And it changes how we implement the portfolio. Yeah. Other than the venture allocation, what's an example of something that you're pursuing that you think a lot of other people couldn't? We can pursue much smaller managers. I think the other part is because of the governance, we also pursue concentration. We actually write down our investment principles and talk about what our beliefs are. And then we marry that with our competitive advantages as an institution. And that was what informed our manager selection process. And I think at the end of the day, what comes out of all that is that we have the ability to build a portfolio of best in breed managers, best in class. And so we have a lot of mismatches in the portfolio. So we have completely zeroed out a whole bunch of things that most people would be completely scared of because it creates a lot of short-term volatility. And our governance structure is supportive of that volatility. We believe the best way to generate long-term alpha is to pick high conviction managers. And so 25 managers make up 80% of the assets across all asset classes. In each asset class or across the whole foundation? Wow. And my goal is to get that to 90. So that level of concentration, there's no way your 50th idea is as good as your first idea. But for some reason, it seems like endowments and foundations tend to like 100 managers no matter what. And every private equity program that I walked into that was a legacy program, they all seem to like 100 managers. 
And I just don't understand that. You can't generate returns. It just goes back to my GE days. You can't generate alpha with 100 managers. So I think that the governance structure here really supports us. And we even talk about it, that how to, in a lower return opportunity set in a more challenging environment, it's gotten much harder than it has. You know, every decade, it seems like it's harder and harder. How do you continue to generate returns? And we believe that concentration is certainly one of the ways to do that. Now, it creates a lot of short-term volatility. Yeah. When you have that level of concentration on the bottom-up basis, basis to generate that excess return. How do you think about that, call it top-down asset allocation? First and foremost, we try to have a very broad asset allocation structure with a lot of flexibility. So we talk about in order for us to generate returns going forward, having a very prescriptive asset allocation structure, we don't think is an advantage. So we only have four asset classes. Three of them are 30% and one's 10. So fixed income is 10, and even though we're actually sitting lower than that. And then we have public equities, we have private investments, and we have, we call it multi-strategy. So think about a combination of absolute return and our opportunistic sort of hedge funds. It's not exclusively hedge funds, but each one has a clear role in the portfolio, and it provides the investment team a lot of latitude in how we implement the portfolio. We also don't get caught up in a great manager and wondering, well, where does it fit in the portfolio? Even when, Sometimes it happens even with the four asset classes, and we still don't care. We just And the committee understands our job is to put in great managers. And when you're that concentrated, what really matters is how they all interrelate to each other. And you really have to have a holistic mindset in portfolio construction. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What have you done in the situations where you start to see some overlap? We have that. And we have an example of some, you can call them, are they a public equity manager? Are they a hedge fund where they are more than 100% gross, long? They have the right to short. They rarely actually short. But because of their risk profile and the fact that they can go 150% long or something like that, they feel more like a hedge fund than what we consider our, our sort of a public equity. And you have to lock up. Where do you put that? Does that go in public equities? Does that go in the multi-strat? And we sort of came up with a set of parameters with our committee to agree on how we would sort of do that. But at the end of the day, they're willing to give us a fair amount of latitude. And what we really poured on is the whole portfolio and showing what our equity risk is across the entire portfolio, what our liquidity risk is across the entire portfolio, and not focusing it on the asset class. The asset class just gives you a sense for what you own. But I would argue going forward, I actually question how valuable the asset classes really are. If you have a Great implementation is just really thinking about it as one portfolio and just understanding all the risks and how do you articulate those risks. How do you think about the benefit of rebalancing? We have probably, in all candor, I think I believe in being intellectually honest and trying to, like, what have you done well and what have you not done well? We probably have not done as good a job as we can on rebalancing. And so something it's on our list of things to think more about and how do we do that. Part of it is, is with, a, with such a concentrated manager, and a large portion of those are actually hard, hard closed. So even moving money around within our existing manager base is difficult. When I go to them, they say, well, the wait list is even closed. And you're like, okay, <laughs> or, I'll put you in the wait list, but it's eight years until you might, you know, based on the current path. So it's difficult to rebalance with our, and so we've talked about, do we use a small sleeve of passive as a tool to sort of help rebalance, et cetera? So I think we've got more work to do to be more effective on the rebalancing. I think as we look back over the last couple of years, I think that's an area for improvement for us. How do you marry the notion of being opportunistic, which you mentioned a few times, with the same issue, which is you go find the managers you love, 
a lot of other people may love them too. You get access. You can't really do much other than pay attention. If you look at our investment philosophy or thesis, definitely being opportunistic and flexible is something that we want to do. I believe during financial crises or our sort of periods of dislocation, those opportunities exist and they're outsized opportunities, but the speed at which you have to act to take advantage of them is important. And that time to react is shrinking and it's been compressing my entire career to the point that unless you sort of have your game plan in advance, it's sometimes difficult to even do a traditional manager search, et cetera, and implement it. So you have to be very swift. I think we have the team to be able to do that. Then the real question is, do you have the dry powder? And so we definitely think about portfolio construction and ways of liquidity pools that we have that we can go and access to then take advantage of those opportunities. What are some of those other core beliefs you mentioned? Our investment principles are that we're a conviction-based investor with a long-term horizon. We believe that relationships really matter with our partners. We are intellectually curious and we value independent thinking. That independent thinking goes back to sort of challenging underlying deals. We're flexible and nimble and that we align our interests with others and our managers. And that's a pretty basic set. I mean, I don't think there's anything really special there, but it's, it's how you implement them. I think we have a belief of sort of intentional simplicity in our portfolio. I think a lot of people are doing a lot of complex things to try and figure out how to make money. I sometimes wonder if we're not doing enough. Even how we construct our managers, where they're located, like we basically have zeroed out private equity in Europe. Going back to your question earlier about mismatches, I don't care. I'm not that worried about I don't have to be everywhere for private equity. I have European exposure through my public equities, et cetera. I have a highly concentrated portfolio, even on the privates. I think the best-in-class managers that we have in the U.S. or China for our privates, I'm pretty comfortable with. And so I think those are examples of us not spending our time traveling to Europe, meeting with private equity managers is, I think, highly beneficial. Yeah. You mentioned relationships matter. What does that mean, and how do you implement on that concept? You have both an institutional brand and a personal brand. I think Irvine, I think, has a strong institutional brand, although not as well-known by a lot of people, but among our managers, is extremely well-known. Personally, I've always tried to build my personal brand of trust, and I do what I say. And so when you couple that with a strong institutional brand, I think it can lead to very strong relationships. And so with our managers, it's really a function of how do they behave. We really want managers that put our interests first. So that means sometimes they'll do things that are not in their interest because it's the right thing to do. That's a small universe of managers that are willing to do that, and it's really a scarce universe. But we have a number of managers that actually outright say that in their principles that that's their intention and they follow it and they do it. And so when they then call us and need something, we try to be supportive and be a good partner and provide advice. And then on the privates, for instance, a lot of people come in and out of funds during different time periods. I think if they're having a more difficult environment and we believe in them, how do we step up and be a supporter, not just financially, but emotionally going out, even introducing them to other investors, et cetera. How big's your team here? It's six investment professionals. So I believe in running top heavy teams. So we have three investment directors, all that have 20 plus years experience. And then we have two pre-MBA associates. And how do you organize the effort? So that was probably one of the most interesting decisions I had to make early on. The board gave me a short list of objectives that they wanted me to sort out in the first year. So obviously, team is always on that list. But the real question was, what's the model? Is it a generalist model? Is it a specialist model? And so I actually did a tour. I went and met 25 endowment foundation CIOs across the country in the first couple of months of my tenure. I had a bunch of different questions for them, but one of them was team and how they organized their team. And and I came from a specialist model, and also a lot of endowments and foundations use a generalist model. And I believe in looking at the portfolio on a holistic basis. And so I was really curious on what the right decision would be there, and I didn't know. But I started asking questions of the team initially, and I was a little surprised at some of the answers. I think the depth of knowledge that I expected was different than maybe a, you know, a generalist model provided. And so... When we started talking to other CIOs, what I really learned, and I think I'd give credit to another CIO that said, you have to actually have domain knowledge to have a seat at the table. You just have to have the intellectual flexibility to have commentary on the rest of the portfolio. And so the way I think about it is we're trying to have people that have domain expertise in one of the three verticals that have the flexibility to work across the entire portfolio. But I do a hybrid model. I call it majors and minors. Each of my three directors take on a risk category between publics, privates, and hedge funds. And that's their domain background. But they, all decisions are made across the entire team. All diligence for a new manager is actually done by the whole team. So if we're looking at a hedge fund in New York, 
all the senior people go to do on-site due diligence. And that's competitive advantage because we run 25 managers with a large portion. So we have one of our competitive advantages is just we can bring more intellectual capital to any decision because of our simplicity. And so we can, for the decisions that we do make, hopefully we have a better percentage of outcomes and quality decision-making. So I held them accountable for sourcing. So for instance, if there's a great idea that comes out in a new asset class and we didn't see it, I know who's accountable on the team. Because I think that's the issue with the journalist models, accountability. So this actually creates accountability, but also creates flexibility. So everybody can source across the entire portfolio. Everybody can make decisions across the entire portfolio. We think across every asset class. And we're still room to grow into that model. But I think so far, been a, a good experience. So if you break down the process, you start with that sourcing piece and you mentioned you don't want your team to miss something. There's a lot of funds in all these asset classes that get started. Private equities on a constant rotation, hedge funds, there's always new stuff. What is it that you're looking to capture? In each of the areas, it's all about portfolio fit. So there's a lot of great managers that are out there that we'd choose not to invest with. They are still great managers. They're just not the right fit for our portfolio. So for us, it's really about what is the right fit for our portfolio. And that for each asset class, we have an objective. What are we trying to accomplish? And so it really is them going out and looking for the things that are the highest need in our portfolio and everybody having a clear understanding of what that is. And so we talk about it as a team. I think everybody understands that. And that's where we're focused on sourcing. Now, if there are excellent managers that just happen to fall in a completely different category, but they're just outstanding, then we also will pursue those. I mean, we really just want managers that are focused on alpha creation and really about absolute returns in the sense of most of our managers are not benchmark oriented. They are absolutely focused on how to just maximize returns, period. What does the meeting and research process look like from there's an initial sourced idea across your team? One of the things I like is for individuals bringing things back to the whole team quite early. So after the first meeting, if you think it's interesting before you keep doing the diligence to, to try and figure out whether it actually is worth investment they're thinking about, bring it to the whole team. Let's talk about it. Because either you might be lukewarm on it and everybody else is excited about it, then we run the risk of actually you turning it down as an individual versus the whole team thinking it's interesting. And or you might think it's really interesting and the rest of the team's kind of like, that doesn't make any sense. And you're wasting all your time. It's a little bit harder on your ego, quite honestly, as a director with a lot of independent. I would describe it as just because you're capable doesn't mean you should in terms of decision making. And so what I want is people that have the capacity but actually choose to seek the input from the rest of the team so that we can make the most informed decisions. Because I think part of our decision in investments is trying to eliminate bias. And we all have implicit bias. And we spend a lot of time trying to rein that out of the system. And by having a team decision-making process, I think we have a higher probability of eliminating any individual bias. And as you walk through that, so someone finds the idea, maybe they have a first meeting, they bring it, team decides we should move forward. What happens from there? Usually the person who has the asset class major will take the lead on doing the next diligence as a team. I believe early on in building a hypothesis, you lay out your hypothesis for your investment thesis and the key risks and the key things that you think you need to understand from a diligence point of view. And then we just discuss the diligence plan and how to prosecute that. And that may be the person that brought it in that will then prosecute it. It may be actually saying, I'm too busy. Can someone else take the lead on this. It could be people tag teaming. So it just depends on what we're trying to accomplish. But it goes to basically an iterative process from there in which it can be handed off to a individual or a group of individuals to then go and do further diligence and bring it back to the team. And they just keep bringing back information and informing the decision-making process. But eventually, we'll go and do a full on-site, you know, do the traditional reference calls, all that kind of stuff. One of the advantages we have is a great investment committee. And I will ultimately always email them and say, do you know so-and-so or but and it's surprisingly the vast majority of times is yes, and it's just a question of how well they know them. <laughs> and so that's actually coming back to governance as a real advantage. I think most organizations they are trying to put their arms up as a sort of a, a block to the investment committee getting involved in decision making because it's not always been productive. And a lot of endowments foundations and for ours they're actually giving us good ideas. And actually, they really care deeply about making the best decisions and anything they can do to help. And so they have a different insight into the conversation than we do. So we can do reference calls, et cetera. We'll get all kinds of information. We'll never get the same lens that they get because they're viewed as peers or friends. Yeah. And so they can tell us a whole set of things that are valuable. And when it comes to the actual decision, what happens when it's not consensus? At the end of the day, everybody understands that I'm the final decision maker. Everybody has input Generally speaking, we seek to make the investment decisions where everybody's on the same page. 
but we will agree to disagree sometimes. And ultimately, that's my decision. I would say if it's just a question of the magnitude of their concern, I have to think if we've got anything where someone really, really had major concerns. But we do so few investments. I think we really are striving for investments where we all, for the most part, are pretty supportive of the investment. The real question is, is, do we have the right facts on the table? If it's just a difference of opinion versus do we have a different set of facts? And so our main goal is to make sure we have the same set of facts on the table so then we can discuss them. And then from there, I'm the final arbiter because I always tease them. If the portfolio doesn't work out, the investment committee is not looking to them. They're looking to me. Yeah, we talked earlier about the co-investing you did at Regents. How have you thought about that here? Going back to your competitive advantage, it's just not one of our competitive advantages. And we generated almost call it 35% net returns plus minus depending on your, whether using IRR or time-weighted returns. That would suggest you should go do that here, <laughs> but they were not. And it's a function of the complexity that it brings. We're not set up structurally from a resourcing point of view. We're not set up from an operational point of view, from a tax point of view. We're not set up from just bandwidth and time. So it would be a bit more of a distraction for us at the moment. Now, long-term, I think we might do that. It would be a function more of if there are more of a financial dislocation in the markets, et cetera, when everybody else is sort of maybe running away, we might run in. And it may not look like a traditional co-investment. It might be going to all of our managers and saying, tell me your best idea that you're not doing and why. And maybe it's because I don't have capital in this. It's outside my purview, whatever. And whether we set up a fund of one, whether we do something with them in some unique form, whether we create a small commingled vehicle to go pursue that, to me, that is more likely to happen here than us having a robust program where we're outsourcing individual deals. Our actual buyout managers aren't structured to provide co-investment because most of our managers that we pick, we you know we're very much focused on alignment of interest and and we don't want them to grow their fund sizes, et cetera. And so they actually have not generated a lot of co-investment. And so we'd have to rejigger the entire manager lineup if we wanted to generate co-investment. So I think there's a whole set of issues there that are complicated. $2.4 billion is really not what our competitive advantage is. If I were running a $100 billion program, there's no question I would do a co-investment program. How have you tackled public equities? We've been fortunate that historically we've generated a reasonable amount of excess returns in our public equity portfolio. Most of our managers are highly idiosyncratic. We generally like managers that are 10 to 15 stock managers. So if I'm going to pay you a fee, pick. Don't just be a closet benchmarker. So it's funny when I meet some managers and they tell me, oh, we're high conviction. We have 50 stocks. I'm like, yeah, that's not high conviction for us. And so it's also we've got a major overweight to emerging markets and particularly China. And we're actually debating what's the right allocation for China, et cetera. Right now, it's a little over 10% of the entity. It's an important component of our public equities. We're about a third of our public equities are emerging markets. When you have an overweight, however you want to define it, yeah. that's going to be called an overweight. There's two bets you're making. You're making it on China, you're making it on the manager. Now, how do you decide how many managers to have that are going to comprise, say, 10% of the portfolio? We have 10 public equity managers, and I think, if anything, it's too many. But the problem is, is you want to have some diversity in the type of strategies. And most of our managers have a tremendous amount of freedom on what they can do. They're not really constrained in where they can invest very often. And so two of those managers are, I would say, predominantly China with a little bit of other areas, but mostly China. They're probably the most constrained if you want to think about it from that point of view. But they're both conviction-based managers. We also want U.S., we want a little bit of Europe, we also like a little bit of small cap, but we do zero out whole sectors. There's, I mean, there are definitely sectors like utilities, things like that. We just don't own hardly anything in those categories. And as one of the things we're wrestling with is just, I think many others are dealing with, is that the tilt in what is viewed as value versus growth in your portfolio and given the performance of growth versus value and just the sector concentrations. We have managers that are conviction-based. It's not a coincidence that they all tend to concentrate in the same sectors in a lot of cases. And then we talked about, well, do we do a passive overlay to bring it back into line? And then when we start looking at the underlying companies that we would actually be investing in, we're generally not that excited by those companies. There's a reason why our managers aren't choosing those. And so this is where we have major mismatches in the portfolio on public equities. Where And so for us, it's about picking managers that have a value orientation and their overall selection style and then letting them go pick the best ideas and giving them a long enough horizon to implement that strategy. And so we truly try and think, you know, a five to 10 year horizon with each of those managers. We think a business cycle is seven to eight years. And some of those managers need the full business cycle to make sure their strategy works. 
When you've had managers in that piece of the portfolio that haven't worked out, how did that decision process play out? How much time did you give them? If anything, when I first came in, I was too slow at pulling the trigger for the concentrating the portfolio. I think with a couple of exceptions, I was pretty accurate on where I thought the weakest links were. And for a host of reasons, I didn't immediately just pull the trigger. I think part of that is you're trying to balance all the different constituencies and making sure that people don't feel like you're moving too quickly, et cetera. But in hindsight, that was probably a mistake. It, it costs us a little bit, not at the end of the day, not that much. But if I were to redo it again, I'd have no questions. I would do it very fast because I think you have to trust your judgment. And so that would have just been me looking at them and just tearing through all the information, going through all the analysis. And that was the existing portfolio when you came here. Yes. What about decisions you've made since the whole team is involved in those decisions, just not me. If I have a concern about a manager, I raise it with the team and then we go in. And so, for instance, one of our managers that has historically had a very strong track record has been underperforming more recently. We went in and did a ton of diligence for every company they have ever invested in. We built our own comp panel for every one of their companies. And we went back to try and answer the question, okay, what's the source of their alpha generation? Have they been good at picking sectors and they just picking the right sectors? Are they picking the right companies in the sectors that performed? Well, and so until you do all the analysis to really tear that all apart, can you really understand what their expertise is? Instead, just look at the tracker and say, yeah, great, they've generated an X return over a long time period. Why? And how many companies? And that took us three to six months just to do one manager to give you an idea. And then we ended up with a 100-page deck where I think the team did a great job of putting providing a lot of information. And it's still not fully clear after that <laughs> process. But then it comes down to, okay, we got the information. Now it's judgment on our part to try and have a view of what we think will be the right outcome going forward. And so we all as a team talk about it and agree on what we're going to track or and whether we're going to pull the trigger to step away from the manager. It is a group decision. When you get to that point in time, so you're there now with this particular manager, you feel like you have all the information. It's not really conclusive of what the right outcome is in terms of alpha. How do you make the decision? I think you have to rely on just judgment. I mean, this is where most of the skills and investments you can teach, but investment judgment is one I'm not sure is something you can teach. So uh, what, are, what are you doing in this situation? This is where it helps to have a team that all have strong investment judgment, and we all can sit around and have different lenses. So I've hired people with different backgrounds. I intentionally build a team with, I'll call it cognitive diversity, in their thinking. And so that leads to, I think, a really different set of views on the look forward. So someone that so – I have an individual on my team that, comes, that worked for a hedge fund. I have someone that comes more from, from a private equity background, but someone from the public's. And so everyone having a different lens on things and their own perspective – I think gives us different views on it. And it's not clear. And that's the beauty of investing. It's art in some ways, right? And if it was a science, everybody could just do it and do it well. We have to rely on all of our investment judgment to decide, is it worth giving them the chance to perform and turn it around? It was clearly more some lack of judgment was a part of the reason they underperformed it. We can isolate the decisions, but they've historically been a very strong firm. And do we believe that they've learned from those decisions and are, are not going to repeat that? And are they going to more align with some of their historical performance and decision-making that allowed that? And so that's just a judgment on the team. And you never know. But I, my experience has been, if you're deeply questioning it, more times than not, you regret not pulling the trigger. But the difficulty is knowing when to step in. And my view is, is if you're going to stay in, you don't just stay in, you double down. So if you've done the work and you th agree to stay in and they're underperforming, then you got to add more money because that means you have the conviction. And so this is a tough one. Normally you can do enough work and figure out whether you want to double down or not. We haven't done that yet. And so it definitely gets us pause. Because we're not willing to double down, then does that raise the question, should we stay in? And this is still an active, active thought process. Fascinating. Okay. Let's turn a little bit to hedge funds where if you walk through a similar research lens, you often don't have the volume of information that you do in the public equity world. Hedge funds are complicated. Some of our managers are willing to share more information than others. While you lack certain information, you benefit from others. I think what I really love about the privates and about publics, equities, is it's really about companies. Do you really understand companies? And I think they actually, in my view, are actually quite similar in terms of your ability to select, et cetera. 
Whereas hedge funds is a much more complicated universe. And it's not really an asset class. It's just a, a set of investment strategies. They have so much flexibility. It's less about just their ability to pick companies per se. You're looking at process and really the quality of the senior people and your conviction and their decision-making ability. Do you have biases towards certain types of hedge funds? So we have biases against certain hedge funds. So we don't like global macro. We think very few people possess the ability to pick market cycles, et cetera. So we just don't do very much of it. And we don't think we possess that skill. So we very much believe in just picking managers that do a great job of picking great companies. And the companies tend to do a better job of actually responding to the economy and all the different environments. We definitely like some credit in terms of distressed credit. We like long short equities, even though it's been a tough environment. We do think with the right set of managers, you can do well. This goes into like, are they really hedge fund or not? We have some, I'll call them optimistic managers. They're about basically picking long equities <laughs> with some other bells and whistles added to them. I think we definitely have conviction and we like those. The issue becomes liquidity. What we really need out of the hedge fund portfolio for a subset of it is liquidity and really uncorrelated returns. And so then it really just becomes who can provide that at the lowest opportunity cost? Because generally speaking, they're not meeting our return threshold that we ideally would like at a portfolio level. And so we're giving that, making that trade-off to have those two objectives. And so it's just a question of who can achieve that. I'm curious if you've done anything with quantitative managers. Again, most endowments foundations tend to not utilize a lot of quant managers. We have, I'll say, dipped our toe with one. I would like to not talk of who it is, but they actually are using machine learning where the machines actually build the algorithms versus most quants, the people build the algorithms. And a lot of times you just get momentum and various things. And so we have not been as interested in just traditional quant managers. Although we have had the conversation, it may actually be beneficial from a portfolio construction point of view to have one. The manager we chose to pick is actually, I think, quite differentiated. And it's a bit of a our asymmetric return profile structure that if they get it right, it's going to be a home run. If they don't, yeah, it's not the end of the world. Where are you looking sort of in the world or across asset classes of opportunities you're most excited about today? Unfortunately, <laughs> it's a pretty tough environment. <laughs> so I wouldn't say there's a whole lot that we're excited about. There's so much capital in the system that it just washes away opportunities so fast. And so we find it difficult to find really areas where we also have an edge or are excited to invest. So what we're really excited about is just finding those special people that just have an uncanny ability to generate excess returns through great stock picking with a long-term horizon. And so it's just how do we concentrate more money with those managers? That said, I do think that there will be opportunities because I'm a big believer that there's so much capital in the system that when there's sort of short-term dislocations, et cetera, they're going to be fairly shallow until they're extreme. And because money moves in very quickly to solve the problem, it, it actually artificially holds the bottom higher than it should be or the trough. And I think that that works until it doesn't, until it gets so severe that the capital is scared to come in, and in which case it will actually be quite brutal. So I think we'll actually see more 2008, 2009s, maybe not in that context. But like I think we'll see longer cycles between really big downs. But when we have those downs, they can be quite severe. And I think that will create opportunities for us. And the question for us is, how do we maintain enough liquidity? And the opportunity cost of maintaining that liquidity while you wait. And so that's the art of portfolio construction. And, and those are conversations we're having, which is, what is the optimal amount of liquidity? Where are you in that framework today? We are pretty light on liquidity relative to probably where we should be because the opportunity cost has been so high, but we're actually having a conversation in October with our investment committee around that to really hone in on like what we think about that and run a lot of scenarios on the portfolio. Do we have enough liquidity to get through? Of course we do. But do we have enough liquidity to play aggressive offense at the level that we need to is the question. And so part of it is, is I don't view privates as illiquid. I'm actually – one of the things I did early in my career is I – sold secondaries back when the only people that sold secondaries were distressed financial institutions. I viewed it as a way to liberate the portfolio, if you will. So if there is an edge that we have. I think one is just my view on privates. I'm a big believer in eliminating the noise. A lot of people just take their legacy investments and just hold them. And I'm a big believer in selling them, cleaning them up, getting concentrated, getting as many of your high-performing assets. I call it your productivity ratio 
getting as many of those quality assets in your private book to perform at the level that you expect them to perform and not just sort of saying, well, it's a legacy asset. I'll let it run off at some point. Well, a lot of times it takes a long time to run off. And that can build up, and I call it the lead layer. And so we've eliminated that lead layer here, even in the first two years. I went and sold a good chunk of privates to create more liquidity. And I think in a downturn, we actually I've got classified a few more of the legacy assets that we actually think are productive, but not as productive as our best managers, but that in a downturn, we would actually sell those. How do you think about the trade-off of price? Because historically, and certainly in a downturn, you'd expect to have a significant haircut on selling privates. One of the few markets that's still inefficient is the secondary market on privates relative to how capital flows, et cetera. And so I think if you have a, a more insightful understanding of how that market works, you can actually create opportunity for yourself. So I think during a downturn, yes, they'll trade at a greater discount than they trade today. But I actually think that because a lot of those buyers, their only job is to buy privates. They don't really care what's going on in the rest of the world. And so you can actually sell privates in an, a period of dislocation potentially and turn around and go buy liquid assets that are actually a more attractive price. And so now that I'm looking at it, the portfolio from a holistic point of view and having that framework, we very much think there's a part of our private portfolio that we would actually sell if we saw a big enough opportunity. And so it's just a question of reprioritizing your assets and – pursuing what you think can generate the best returns going forward. And I think a lot of CIOs don't come from a private equity background and are not comfortable with selling. And when I talked to private equity teams, their greatest frustration was, I can't get the CIO to agree to do this. And fortunately, I come from that background, so I'm usually the one actually advocating to do it. And I think that creates a lot of flexibility for us. Because when I came in, we were over-allocated on privates, and we ended up selling our lowest-performing on a future expected value, our lowest performing privates. And I think the key there is, is you have to have the ability to pick what you believe the future expected value is. I can't pick the IRR because I don't know that picking out time is difficult, but you should have a strong ability to pick expected multiple plus or minus, depending on economic scenarios. And I think if you can do that, then you can actually make informed decisions because the discounts that you pay or you take on privates when you sell them are even positive premiums. It's irrelevant. It's what's the economic value of the asset and what's the expected price versus the economic value. Some of the things you you didn't talk about and either you don't have them in the portfolio or they're not that important. There's a little bit of bonds, which you mentioned, 10%. What about real estate and real assets? Very little. So this goes back to mismatches. So... Real estate, one of the things that I disagree with some of my peers on is I think a lot of endowments have real estate because they think about it as inflation protection. I think it's sort of – it's real estate and it's not really real estate in the true context because it's usually opportunistic real estate, which once you're opportunistic real estate, you're just private equity. And so if that's the case, then just call it what it is and let's let it compete for the best return. And so for us, what we think about is if we go a liquid, what's the maximum return profile we can get for that illiquid unit? And for us, and given our location here in the Bay Area, going back to one of our competitive advantages, that generally tends to be venture. And then the question, my historical view has always been you do as much venture as you can get good access to. This certainly tests my theory on that because it, you know the amount of access that we have is quite good. And it puts me into sort of risk limits that at a total portfolio parameter that give you pause. And so we can only do that because we have alignment with the full investment committee. But if we have that access on venture, why should I do real estate? Now, we recognize that creates a mismatch around inflation protection, et cetera, but I don't think most institutions are actually putting real estate in for inflation protection purposes. They might think that. I don't think the true risk is actually that. And so, and on real assets, it's the same thing. All privates compete. And we talk about with the committee is we do have some clear risks because of the type of concentrations that we have. We have mismatches like that where we could have challenges. But I do believe that it's a question of a time frame that you're measuring and not – if you take a long enough horizon, uh, I think it's actually fine. And how about bonds? We have 6% in fixed income today with a target of 10 and it's liquid, but is that enough? And I think it's also a question that I've talked about the investment committee about is, are we willing to liquidate 100% to play offense? I think most people think about it as, well, you constantly replenish, et cetera. And I think about it as, if things get in that environment where I talk about those very severe downturns, are you willing to liquidate that to play offense? And so those are the conversations we'll have with the investment committee. If the answer is no, then we'll need to raise a little more liquidity in other ways to have it available to play offense. If we're willing to liquidate those bonds to play offense, then that provides that opportunity. Do you feel a little half pregnant with the bonds today? In what sense? 
Well, everything else you've talked about is this high conviction. We're either in or we're out and we'll zero. We don't need European bonds. We don't need real estate. And then you get this like uh, 6% bonds. And there's reasons to have bonds in a portfolio. I understand that. but I don't feel half pregnant. Every asset plays a role in the portfolio. The bonds play a liquidity role, period. You have to have liquidity in the portfolio. We have unfunded commitments. And it's the one thing we can do from a risk profile and really get ourselves in trouble is not having adequate liquidity to address our portfolio. And so I spend a ton of time thinking about our liquidity and not just what we have access to, but we have a lot of hard-closed managers. Even if I have access, and we have separate accounts with managers that are hard-closed, that if I took the money, I can't get it back in. So yes, I have daily liquidity. But if I take it, the future opportunity cost is tremendous. And so really understanding what your real liquidity is, is really important. So the bonds play an important role in providing that liquidity for the portfolio. How do you manage the bonds? We have a separate account with one manager, just quite simple. They're a great manager. They've done a great job for us. And we let them have some flexibility in how they implement that. And we stay in close contact with them. But we have liquidity parameters that we give them that they need to adhere to. What's your least favorite part of your job right now? Honestly, I wake up every day. I love coming to work. So <laughs> it's a privilege to have these jobs. It truly is. So there's not a lot that I don't like. Certainly, you know, managing people is the best and worst part of the job. Anytime that you know, when things aren't going well on that front, that's always hard. When it's going well, it's great. But like, there's not much that I don't like about my job. What do you see as the biggest challenge going forward? The biggest challenge for us is really make sure we have the discipline around liquidity in the portfolio and being prepared to deal with a severe market disruption. And have we adequately planned for that? Are we correct in our assumptions in our own portfolio? What we think we have liquidity on? Do we really have liquidity on? I'm very worried about the knock-on effects on things where, just like we felt in the last crisis, where just because something was a high-quality asset that was liquid, the price was more damaged than we anticipated that could affect some of our assumptions. And so just have we done enough work to really understand all of that and be prepared? Well, Tim, let's turn to a couple of closing questions here. I know you're ready for these. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I love skiing with my family. My kids were on the Squaw Valley ski team for a couple of years. We go to Utah for Christmas every year. It's just wonderful. What's your favorite mountain? Squaw would be our home mountain, but honestly, we started going to Utah and the snow is so much better. (laughs) I'm a convert, so now it's Alta slash Snowbird. (laughs) Yeah. What's your biggest pet peeve? Honestly, it's when people are selfish and they put themselves above the organization. We're a mission-driven organization here at Irvine. But even before being here, I just I grew up in an environment where you always do the right thing. And it frustrates me when people don't do that. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? Probably a lack of intellectual honesty. I think this job is really hard. And if you're not willing to be intellectually honest about what works and what doesn't, and honestly, our first co-investment we did, we made really good money. But in hindsight, we missed some things. And if we were intellectually honest, I would say it was a bad investment decision. And so just going back and really understanding those issues. What reading do you almost never miss? Howard Marks is his periodic writings, obviously phenomenal. I just uh, was on spring break with my daughter last week and finished his most recent book. I think Howard is tremendously insightful. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Honestly, it's a holistic set. I think it's just more around values that they instilled in me. As a result, I know who I am and I have a strong set of values personally, and that's allowed me to have an investment approach that's principle-based. And it's also, if I had to pick, I guess, I would say they taught me honesty and always to do the right thing, even when it's not in our, your own interest. And that, you know, that's worked out for me. I've never sort of had to self-advocate. Things have always worked out for me. Last one, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I would just go back to my formative experience working in Hong Kong for three years early in my career, just to understand and appreciate having a global perspective. It was really fascinating for me to learn that, to understand my own bias and just read the U.S. media and to read the local media and to see, like, are we talking about the same story? And just to really appreciate that. So just getting a global perspective early in your life, I think, is really valuable, particularly in investing. Great. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.